Our preaching series through the book of 1 Peter brings us today to the last verse of chapter 3, which says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Our text for today is the culmination of Christ's victorious triumph. The flow of the passage begins actually back in verse 13 where Peter talked about the sufferings which Christians will endure. And that wasn't the first time, you know, that he mentioned the subject of sufferings because that actually has been a prominent emphasis throughout First Peter from chapter 1. But after talking a bit about the suffering of believers, he then mentions in verse 18 the suffering of Jesus Christ. For Christ also suffered, he tells us. If you are suffering, that is uh, true and that is a cause for prayer and for a need for strength and grace. But don't consider this to be something abnormal because this is actually just following in the path of your Savior. You are suffering, to be sure, but Christ also suffered. But he goes on in verses 19 to 22 to show us how that Christ triumphed over suffering. Yes, Christ suffered. But then, after suffering unto death, he rose from the grave. Verse 18. He proclaimed victory to the evil spirits in prison. Verse 19. And he ascends to heaven to the very throne of God, verse 22, the text for today, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The humiliation of Christ began with the incarnation and continued in a series of steps to its climax, which was indeed his death and his burial. And when Christ was buried in the tomb, that was the last stage of his humiliation. That was the last humiliating thing that men could do to him, to take his dead body and to bury it. I think actually his burial was something of a turning point, but because there are elements both of humiliation and of exaltation in his burial, for he was Buried by his friends, not by his enemies. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, not in a poor tomb. And so we begin to see, even in his burial, the beginning of what is going to come next. But even as his humiliation found its climax in his death and his burial, his exaltation finds its climax with his return to the throne of God in heaven. And there are basically three steps to Christ's exaltation. They are, number one, his resurrection, number two, his ascension, and number three, his session. The resurrection was the first step in his exaltation. When Christ rose from the dead, he rose in triumph, he rose in power, he rose in glory. He came out of the grave in a glorified body, and that was the beginning of his great exaltation. And then the second step was his ascension back to heaven, where in the In the presence of witnesses, he arose bodily in that Shekinah glory, the cloud that enveloped him, and took him back 
to his father's presence. And the third step of his exaltation was his being seated upon the throne of God, seated at the very right hand of the throne of the universe. Now, verse 21 states the first step, the resurrection, and we looked at that last week. But our text for today, verse 22, takes up the second and the third steps of Christ's exaltation. First, his ascension. Secondly, his session. And that's the technical term for his being seated upon the throne of God in heaven. His session. That's where he is reigning. That's where he is seated. That's where he is, if you please, conducting the business of the universe. He is in session at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And then our text adds one additional um, explanation about his session. So our text has three clauses, the first two that are numbers two and three in the steps of his exaltation, and then the third one, which is an expansion of number two. You can see that as you look uh, more closely at our text in verse 22. There are three clauses. Number one, who has gone into heaven. Number two, and is at the right hand of God. And number three, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, it might be helpful for you to know that the clause that talks about his position at the right hand of God is really the main clause in this verse. And the other two clauses are subordinate clauses, which mean they modify, they describe, they uh, in some way inform us more about that main clause. And so the main point of the verse is that Christ is on the throne. Christ is at the right hand of God in heaven. And then there is a clause that tells us how he got there, his ascension. And then there's a clause that tells us a little bit about the extent of his power there. Namely, that he reigns over angels and authorities and powers at the Father's right hand. The actual, more literal translation of the verse makes that clear. And I think the New American Standard Bible probably follows the Greek text more closely when it says this. Putting the, the uh, session at the right hand as the main clause in the first clause in the verse. And here's how the New American Standard Bible translates this verse who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. You get the idea? The main point is that after Christ rose from the dead, he went to the right hand of God. And then the clause, subordinate clause, having gone into heaven, tells us how he got there. And then the subordinate clause, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him, tells us the extent of his power and authority as he reigns upon the throne. However, most translations follow the historical continuity of what took place. The translation before me now does that. And most translations also uh, give us these events in more of a linear order. He did this, and he did that, and he did the other. Uh, Some of them have uh, two relatively equal clauses and one subordinate clause. Some have three relatively equal clauses. These are uh, details of translation. But I just say that so you'll know uh, what the text actually looks like and what what it emphasizes most, which is that Christ is on the throne of the universe. 
That's the main point of the text. But again, looking at the translation that I have, and probably the one that you have before you, it says in 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven. It puts the ascension first. Because historically, that came first. And then number two, and is at the right hand of God. That's what came next. He was seated at the throne of God in heaven. And then this additional information, this qualifier, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And we will follow in our message today the historical order. And so we're going to look at the reigning Redeemer, the glorious exaltation of Christ. And we shall see, number one, his ascension, number two, his session, and number three, his subjugation. First of all, his ascension, who has gone into heaven. Just a brief phrase to tell us that there was this historical event of Christ actually ascending from earth to heaven, leaving the earth and going to heaven. The earth is a place. Heaven is a place. The earth can be identified in the universe and located in the universe. And for those who know how, heaven can also be located in the universe. I can't tell you how to find it, where it is, but I'm confident it is just as much a location in the universe of God as is the earth. And Christ went from one location to another location, from earth to heaven. The ascension really is a very important doctrine in the New Testament. We read one of the accounts in Acts 1, and I'll read again verses 9 through 11. And when he had spoken these things, while they, that is the disciples, watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The account is also found in Mark 16 and verse 19 and in Luke chapter 24 and verses 50 and 51. And so here's the point of Christ's ascension. Christ came to earth invisibly, almost secretly, except for the few people who were informed of his coming. Mary, Joseph, a few people who were told about Christ's coming. But he came without calling attention to that coming. The virgin conception was an invisible event. No eye saw it except the eye of God. And that was the event that brought the second person of the Trinity off the throne of heaven, departing from heaven and coming to earth. He left that location and came to this location. He's getting ready to reverse that. So Christ came to earth invisibly and almost secretly, but Christ returned to heaven bodily, visibly, triumphantly. He returned to heaven bodily. When we die, we go to heaven not bodily. Our bodies go in the grave, but our souls, the spiritual part, the spirit part of our being, will go to be with the Lord. We go into heaven unbodily. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to say this exactly, but without our bodies until 
the Lord returns and there will be the glorious resurrection when we too will be raised like Christ and have bodies like Christ and our bodies will be joined to our souls and our bodies will then be be uh, constituted spiritual bodies so that we can uh, go to heaven in those bodies. We can't do that now. These bodies are not suited for heaven, cannot go to heaven. So when we go to heaven, when we die, we go without our body. But Jesus Christ went to heaven bodily, didn't he? And that's very important. And he went visibly in the presence of many of his disciples. And he went triumphantly in this glorious display, this rising up and being enveloped in the Shekinah glory cloud of God. And his ascension is the final visible evidence of his identity, that he is in fact the Son of God. Have you ever thought about these words that Christ spoke in John 6? That's the bread of life discourse. And after Christ made it clear that he is the source of spiritual life, he did that in figurative language, that we must eat of him if we're going to have life. And many of his disciples turned away from him. There are several things in the passage that might have caused their turning away, but this remark by Christ, I think, makes it clear what is really the heart of their objection. We read in verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to him, Does this offend you? And then these words, What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? If you're offended when I tell you that I'm the bread of life and other things that talk about who I am, my true identity, and my sovereign power, which was also emphasized in that bread of life discourse, if that offends you, then what are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascend back to heaven? You see the Son of Man going back to where he was before. You see, not just the fact that he goes, not just the fact that he is now there, but there's something about this transfer, this this ascension that is important because that is the final visible evidence of who he is. After that, he's seen no more upon the earth. But that was the final glimpse of the risen, glorified Son of God and the final evidence that he is, in fact, God the Son. The Ascension. And so in spite of many evidences of who Christ is, starting with the Old Testament scriptures that described him and foretold his coming, and then the working of his miracles, which pointed to his identity, and the words which he spoke, which were words of such power that pointed to his identity, And then that glorious resurrection when he rose from the dead, triumphant over the grave, that pointed to his identity as the Son of God. But now this ascension, going back to heaven in such a glorious, visible, bodily, triumphant way, that is the final evidence that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Furthermore, the ascension pictures the manner of his return, as we read in Acts chapter 1. Christ ascended to heaven bodily, visibly, triumphantly, and the angels told the disciples that Christ will come in the same manner when he comes back again. He will come back how? Bodily, visibly, triumphantly. That much we can be absolutely sure of. Other details we are still wrestling with, but that much all 
true Bible believers agree on. Jesus Christ will return from heaven bodily, visibly, triumphantly someday. And his ascension is the portrait of that. The way he went is the way that he will return. Furthermore, his ascension assures his present heavenly ministry. He is our high priest now in heaven, and that's that's connected with his ascension. Uh, we read in uh, Hebrews 8.6, which I must turn to. Hebrews 8.1, rather. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Who's on that throne? Our high priest. We have a high priest in heaven. You say, Christ is on the throne of heaven. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Yes, he is. But he is also high priest representing his people there. That's vitally important. And he had to ascend back to heaven in order to do that. He is interceding for us now from his position in heaven. And that's vitally important. We read in Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. There's his entrance into heaven. A brief reference there again to the ascension. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's representing us there. He's interceding for us there. He had to go back to heaven to do that. Furthermore, he from heaven dispenses the Holy Spirit to his church. We read in Acts 2.33 in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. And I was amazed at how many times that phrase is found in the scriptures, that Christ is at the right hand of God. It must be more than 20 times. I didn't realize it was so often. But you just, when you start looking for it, it's over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament scriptures. This is worthy of our consideration, our meditation. This deserves great emphasis. And we find it here in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, emphasis upon his exaltation. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. This is the explanation for what happened at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Who did that? Jesus did. From where? From his throne in heaven. Having the power and authority to do that. He had promised that to his disciples. He said, if I go away, I will send the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit unto you. And sure enough, not long after he ascends back to heaven, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes descending upon the church in great power. And that's Christ in heaven dispensing the Holy Spirit to his church. And he continues to dispense the Holy Spirit to his people. He's doing that right now for you, for me, for all who are his blood-bought people. He's doing that from his seat at the right hand of God in heaven. And furthermore, his going into heaven was to open the way for us so that we could go. We read in Hebrews 6.19, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. 
even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The forerunner, that's Christ. Forerunners have some coming after. If there's a forerunner, there are also afterrunners. The forerunner is Christ. The afterrunners are all Christ's people. And Christ has gone into heaven for us as the forerunner to open the way for us to follow. That's why he says, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going. I'm preparing the way. I'm going first. I'm opening the way. I'm ascending to heaven. And my ascension assures that my people will also join me there. So his ascension is very important. He has gone into heaven. But the second part of our verse tells us what he's doing in heaven. And we've already looked at some of the things, but here's the main point. And is at the right hand of God. Not only his ascension, but his session. And this, as I've already pointed out, is the main clause of the text. This is the point, the main point of this verse. That Jesus is at the right hand of God. That's the climax of his exaltation. And I already told you how amazed I was at the number of times that this is mentioned, his being at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand is always, throughout the scripture, the place of honor. That starts back in the Old Testament. We can find many references to that. You remember in Genesis 48 when when uh, Joseph wanted Jacob, his father, to bless his two sons. And in the course of blessing them, Jacob, obviously guided by the Spirit of God, crossed his hands and put his right hand upon Ephraim, the second son, instead of upon Manasseh, the firstborn. And Joseph objected to that. And Joseph said to his father in Genesis 48:18, Not so, my father. For this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He did it deliberately, even though he couldn't see. He was blind, but he was guided by God in doing it. It was important that the right hand be upon the one who receives the greatest blessing, because the right hand is the most important hand. Now, this is all symbolic, of course, but we see that. From the Old Testament, and there are many other Old Testament texts that tell us the same thing. And there are many New Testament texts that talk about this. I can only give you a few. Uh, Acts 5.31, another sermon of Peter. Paul says, Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God has exalted Him to His right hand. Over and over and over again, we read this language in the New Testament. Romans 8.34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. At the right hand of God, the position from which he makes intercession for his people. Hebrews 12.2, another familiar text. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down where? 
You know where? At the right hand of the throne of God. And what is the significance of this right hand of the throne of God? Well, it tells us that Jesus the Son is reigning. He is the regent of the king. He has the king's full confidence, the king's full approval, the king's full authority. In fact, he is acting on behalf of the king. Just like Joseph in Egypt acted as the regent on behalf of Pharaoh, and what Joseph did was, in effect, what Pharaoh did. He had the power and authority to speak for Pharaoh, to act for Pharaoh, to command on behalf of Pharaoh. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the right hand of the Father, and he acts as the Father's regent. He has all the honor that the Father has. He has all the authority that the Father has. He has all the power that the Father has. He can command just as surely as the Father can. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord, ruling and reigning. On the throne of God in heaven. That's why every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ. Is Lord. But we need to consider a few more things. That are related to the significance of this truth. That Christ is upon the throne of God in heaven. And what we learn is. That this is new authority given to Christ as the God man. Now, as the eternal Son of God, he has had this authority for all eternity. In the incarnation, the humiliation, as we know, he divested himself of the, I don't know how to call it exactly, unrestricted use of that authority to come to earth as a man. He could call upon his power and authority at any moment. He had had immediate access to it, but there was something different. There was a laying aside of the prerogatives of his deity in the incarnation. Now all of that is restored to him, but it's not exactly as before. There's something added. There's something more than before. Before he had all this authority as the eternal spirit God, for God is spirit. Now he has all this authority as the God man. And I don't confess to understand everything that's involved in that, But I do understand that there was something about his incarnation and death on the cross that earned for him not just a return to the power that he had before, but the privilege of of, uh, appropriating that power as a man, as the God-man. And that's related to our salvation and who we have been made as sons of God and the power and authority that we shall have someday along with him. He had to secure that for us. As a man, he had to become a man. To be our high priest, he had to become a man. To be our sacrifice, he had to become a man and lay down his human life on our behalf. And to gain us entrance into heaven, he had to go to heaven as a man. And to gain the authority and power which is promised unto us and the glory which is promised unto us, he had to acquire this as a man. And so this is new authority for him as the God-man. He went back to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Furthermore, we understand that Jesus now reigns. It's not that he will reign. It is that he now reigns. That's why he said in Matthew 28, 18, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me. It was bestowed. This is something new. It's being given to him as the God-man. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go you, disciples, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. But you see, if his authority doesn't come until his second coming, then he doesn't have any authority to give to us now, does he? But he now reigns. He now has full authority, even at this very moment. At the end of the service today, we are going to sing, Jesus shall reign. And that refers to his second coming, when his reign will be uh, complete and conspicuous. But we could also sing, Jesus now reigns, where the Son doth his successive journey runs. His kingdom stretches from shore to shore. He now reigns because he has already been given that authority, as he told his disciples. Because he has already been seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has all power, all authority, (coughs) all control. That is in fulfillment of prophecy. Let me read a couple of statements from the Psalms. Psalm 8.6, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, that pass through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have given to him, to who? The Son. All power. All authority. Psalm 110, verse 1. I think this is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's quoted again and again and again and again. The Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Lord, Adonai, David's Lord. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ, the Son. Sit at my right hand. There's that right hand again. Till I make your enemies your footstool. And so he is ruling and reigning now. There's no question about it. And yet there does await a final fulfillment. The total subjugation awaits the future. And that always disturbs us because we like everything neat and tidy and black and white and and, uh, easily understood. But the fact of the matter is Jesus Christ rules and reigns and controls things now. And yet he has chosen for some reason not to bring everything completely under his subjection until the future. There will come a time when there will not be anywhere visible in the universe anyone who disobeys the express will of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Every knee shall bow. That's future. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's future. But it's already a power which he possesses. And even is exercising, though he has chosen for some reason not to, as it were, jerk the chain yet. But he's got the chain in his hand, and he's got the power to jerk it at any time. It's some of this already not yet tension that we find all throughout 
the Bible. Some things are already true, and yet they have not yet been finally realized. And many of these things have to do with those things that are invisible and those things that are visible. And a lot of this is done, I'm sure, to prod our faith. Does the Bible tell us that Jesus Christ is reigning now? Yes. Do we see it in the world around us? Does it appear that he's reigning now? No. So what do you believe? Is he reigning now or is he not? Some don't believe that he is because they don't see it with their eyes. Others know that he is because they see it with spiritual eyes in the word of God. And they know that he is ruling and reigning with perfect sovereignty, controlling all things according to his will. There's some real implications for that, of course. That means that the present rebellion that we see all around us, even very close to us at times, is all part of his plan. It's included in his plan. He is sovereign over that. He has a purpose for that. He's using that for his purpose, for his glory. You say, well, I don't understand that. Nobody asked you to understand it. Nobody required you to understand it. All that's required of you is to believe it. To trust Him. And that is required of us. But we move thirdly to His subjugation. First of all, His ascension. Secondly, His session. He's reigning on the throne. Thirdly, His subjugation. And Peter added this apparently just to make sure we understand the full universal extent of his reign, of his control. He controls everything. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, and then this, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. There is the emphasis upon the past tense. This is already a done deal. Now, who is subject to him? According to this text, angels and authorities and powers. That evidently refers to angelic ranks. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 25. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, or delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. You catch the similar language there. An end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now that text, of course, can refer to both earthly powers as well as angelic powers. But then we read a phrase like this in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Similar language describing the powers, the authorities that we're wrestling against, described in language very much like our text. And we find out that here we're talking about satanic powers, fallen angels, demons, and their powers. Or we read in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed, listen to this, having disarmed, already done deal, having disarmed, principalities, and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I wish I had time to explore that text more. 
Now, this text could be translated angels of authority and angels of power. Two things rather than three doesn't make a lot of difference. But the emphasis here seems to be upon falling, fallen angels. And the emphasis seems to be that his power extends even to them. Nobody would have questioned if he's on the throne of God in heaven that his power would have been over the holy angels. Of course, his power would include that. Nobody would have questioned if he reigns from the throne in heaven that he has power and authority over the church. We recognize that. Probably nobody would question whether he has authority over the earth that he created. Though we do wonder sometimes why he allows things to go on as he does, but we must simply accept that as his will and trust him. But some might question, does he really have all authority and power over Satan and the demons and the fallen angels? And the answer is yes, 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 he does. All creation is subject to Christ. And when did they become subject to him? At the cross. We read about it just a moment ago. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. We referred to it earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, the death of the cross, therefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He won that at the cross. He earned that at the cross. That was given to him at the cross. But why does Peter now add this particular information at this place in 1 Peter 3.22? Well, it is first and foremost to assure us of the universal extent of Christ's authority. He rules over everything. Over heaven and over hell. Over willing servants and over rebellious ones. Over the kingdoms of this earth and over principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world against Spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. He rules over it all. He has authority over it all. Furthermore, Peter no doubt wrote this to remind us that we too shall triumph over suffering. That was the whole point. Remember the context again? Christians suffer, yes. But don't forget, Jesus also suffered. But don't forget, Jesus greatly triumphed. Over his suffering. Jesus greatly triumphed coming out of his suffering. What great exaltation that sprang forth from that great suffering. And Peter is saying, the same is true of you. Believers in Jesus Christ. Children of the Most High God. Blood-bought children of God. The same is true of you. Don't lose heart. Don't become discouraged. You are suffering. That's part of what God has appointed for us. 
But triumph comes out of suffering for the children of God. Triumph came out of suffering for Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our elder brother. And triumph comes out of suffering for us as well. In fact, all of this simply foreshadows our ascension and rule with him. Let me read a couple more texts. I've read more extra texts in my sermon today than I usually do because I thought I needed to. So please bear with me a couple more. Revelation 2.26 And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, said Jesus, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. A prophecy of Christ's ruling, but Christ here says that that ruling extends to his people. We're going to rule and reign with him, as we know the Bible teaches. Listen to these words in Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, isn't that an astounding thought? Christ triumphed over suffering and death and ascended in glory back to heaven and sat down upon the throne of his Father in heaven. And he says, I did that so that you can join me. In fact, I see a lot of parallels here. Christ ascended back to heaven, went up from earth to heaven. We're going to ascend to heaven someday when the trump sounds, when the Lord returns. There's going to be a great resurrection. There's going to be a catching up. There's going to be an ascension of God's people who are going to ascend in glory like our Savior. He just, just like Christ's resurrection from the dead foreshadows our resurrection from the dead. So Christ's ascension back to heaven foreshadows our ascension to heaven. And Christ sitting upon the throne of God in heaven foreshadows our ruling and reigning with him and sharing in the authority which flows from that throne. And that is mind-boggling. That's astounding. Lord, just to be saved is enough. Just, just to be rescued from hell is enough. Just let me be a, a, a garbage collector. Oh, there won't be any garbage in heaven. Let me... Let me sweep the streets of gold. Well, there probably won't be any dirt in heaven. I don't. But just, you know, that's, that's, that's sufficient for me. Just let me be in your presence. Just let me sit at the back, in the corner. That, that's all I, all I desire. Uh, but I've got more planned for you than that. You're going to sit with me and reign with me and rule with me upon my throne. I purchased that for you upon the cross. And so, dearly beloved, let your faith be strengthened. Your Lord and Savior is Lord of the universe. His rule is universal. You can trust Him. And you can be comforted. Suffering doesn't have the final word. Christ does. And you can have hope. Our ascension And glorification, exaltation, is certain to come. And so we can have great courage in the face of trials, shall we pray. Lord, what a glorious Savior 
is Jesus, our Lord. Father, we get bogged down every time we try to even understand the relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And we get bogged down when we try to understand the intricacies of salvation and how all these things shall come to pass. But, O Lord Jesus Christ, one thing we know. Because you loved us first, we love you. You have enabled us to love you. You have taught us to love you. And because you have brought us to trust in you and to love you, then all of our hopes and all of our aspirations are found in you. And Lord, the more we learn about what that means, the more we realize that our hopes and faith are so well grounded, not at all misplaced. There is so much that awaits us simply because we have been brought by your Spirit to trust in you. O Lord God, to bring every soul everyone under the sound of my voice to trust completely and fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen.